thanks very much, Dave. Um, so what is the purpose of life? That's probably quite a big opening question to start with this morning. So maybe to help you out a bit, let me give you a few suggestions. So these are just some things like Google's, Google, what's the purpose of life? And this is what came out. So the purpose of life is to live it, to taste and experience to the utmost, to reach out eagerly, and without fear, reach for newer and richer experiences. That's not too bad. Or the purpose of life is to contribute in some ways to making things better. In fact, Google purpose of life, and you're going to see a whole range of different answers from all sorts of people. In fact, if you're any sort of person, you'll have some opinion to this question. So a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about it. It is one of humanity's big questions. So I think it shows us something. People want a purpose. A life without purpose can be demoralizing or frustrating. All these many quotations show this, but I think we know it from our own life experiences as well. So it's hard to enjoy doing a job or a task that we have if we think it's not going to lead anywhere, if we think it's a bit pointless. Maybe you've started a new job or done a work placement in the past. This is something I know from experience. You show up on your first day and you're really keen to make an impression. You want to get your teeth into some real work, but instead, you spend the first day sitting at a desk, flicking through some company leaflets and looking at the company website. So that lack of purpose can make you dread going to work. See, we all crave purpose, and we want to see what it is now. So my second big question of the morning, what's our identity? Who are we? So again, this is another question that many people have thought a lot about. People want to know who they are. There's been a recent trend towards people investigating their family trees, no doubt made popular by the BBC program, Who Do You Think You Are? So it's all linked to this search for identity. Who are we? What labels can we attach to ourselves? And I think identity is so important to us because it's through identity that we can actually know what our purpose in life is. Let me give an example of that. If my identity is as a pilot, well, I know my purpose is to fly planes. If my identity is a parent, I know my purpose is to look after my children. See, identity and purpose are linked together. See, once I know my true, proper identity, I can begin to work out what my real purpose in life is. So far in the book of 1 Peter, our eyes have been fixed on the future, haven't they? And it's a very good future to look at, a glorious inheritance with God our Father in heaven. Maybe with all this looking to the future, hope that we have, we, we find it maybe difficult to see how that plays out in the day-to-day, -day, here and now. But now in chapter 2, Peter zooms into the present, and he tells us what our identity and purpose now is. The answer to those two big life questions Peter reveals here. So as we work through this passage, we'll first discover our identity before working out from that what our purpose here is. So if you have that passage open in front of you from 1 Peter chapter 2, that'd be very helpful. If you look down, you might think Peter sounds a little bit muddled. I've heard some people say in the past that Peter isn't a great writer. He maybe mixes up his metaphors and he's a bit muddled with his ideas. 
Well, I've actually found that to be completely false in this passage, and I think that Peter's metaphors are all very carefully chosen and arranged very intentionally. This passage is a little bit tricky at first reading, but here's a quick guide to help us see what's happening. Verse 4 and verse 5 act as two summaries. So verse 4, Jesus, a living stone who's chosen and precious. Verse 5, we are spiritual stones and also a priesthood. Then verses 6 to 8 go on to explain verse 4 more fully. They use the Old Testament language to explain verse 4, and verses 9 and 10 does the same for verse 5. So if you see me jumping around in the passage this morning, it'll be to reflect this structure. So my first point this morning, we have a new identity in Christ. So look with me at verse 4, because it talks about Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans and chosen by God, and precious to him. So later in this passage, we're going to read of some of the benefits of being a Christian now, and we'll get to discussing them soon. But it's important to notice how we access those benefits. It is by coming to Jesus, the living stone, or in verse 6 and 7, as he's described, the cornerstone. See, the cornerstone is the foundation upon which everything else is built and measured from. If you're here a few weeks ago at the BB in GB enrollment, you'll have seen a great drama from some very talented actors illustrating this really well. See, humans all try to build their lives on other foundations like money or status, but these are no good. Whereas God builds his church of this chosen people on Jesus, the cornerstone, the only sure foundation. So what it means to come to the cornerstone has two elements. First of all, the idea that Jesus is our foundation. Our lives are built upon him. He's to be the most important one to us. And our trust is fully and confidence is fully in him because he is secure and his promises are sure. And secondly, coming to the cornerstone means being measured against it, being brought in line with the cornerstone and being changed to fit alongside it. You can imagine the builder laying his big slab of a cornerstone and then individually crafting each of the other stones to lay on top of it, chipping away at the rough edges. Essentially, that's what verses 1 to 3 in chapter 2 were talking about, ridding ourselves of malice and deceit and growing up in our faith, becoming more like Jesus by craving pure spiritual milk. That's why Peter can then go on to call each of us living stones too. I wonder if you noticed that. It's it's quite remarkable that we get the same title as Jesus. It's because if we're living a life of discipleship, if we're made to be more like Jesus each day, then we can share that title of living stones with Jesus. So if we have that same identity as Jesus, that same title, and we're trusting in him as our sure foundation, we'll be wanting to become more like him. But notice, however, not everybody reacts positively to the cornerstone. There are two reactions that we see in this passage. First, in verse 4, Jesus is rejected. It's not everybody wants Jesus as the cornerstone. Not everyone wants their life to be shaped in such a way that Jesus is put at the center of it. So the quotation is from Psalm 118 that we see in verse 7 of this passage. It helps to explain this a little bit further. 
It describes all people as builders. So all people need a cornerstone of some sort. Some people reject Jesus as the cornerstone and instead will need to choose something else. By definition, all people need some sort of cornerstone. When we think like this, it shows us that rejecting Jesus can actually be done quite subtly. It's not necessarily a loud public declaration of, I reject you, Jesus. It can be done even here in church and go largely unnoticed. If, if anything else is allowed to take the position of cornerstone, that is, if anything else shapes your identity in a greater way than Jesus, then that itself is a rejection of Jesus. Sam listed a few of these a few weeks ago. Is it education that we build our hope and security and identity on? Is it the development of our families or is it the development of our careers that our hope lies? Peter lets us know that it's not okay to have other cornerstones. A rejection of Jesus causes people to stumble and fall. So what is the proper response? Well, it is in verse 7. This stone is precious. Jesus is to become precious to you. You're to treasure and value your relationship with him and it's be evident to others that Jesus is precious to you. If something is really precious to you, you want it to be seen and appreciated by others. Like a new engagement ring, it's both precious in its value but also in what it symbolizes. But it isn't just locked in a vault to protect it. It is displayed so that others can see it and appreciate it too. So how do we display Jesus as precious to us? Well, maybe how we speak about Jesus. Is he shown off as precious to others? And is displayed in how we act in a way that is like him, that sees him as valuable. As chosen people of God, holding Jesus precious is to be the center of our identity. And that's what we're to be built upon. That's not entirely what our identity is. Peter has a lot more to say. So my second point this morning is we have a new identity in community. So it's very possible for us to create an identity for ourselves that we like and we are pleased with, but it could be completely false. For example, if I was doing that summer work placement, I could have thought myself as the the great genius coming to revolutionize the company. The boss knew what I really was. I was a nuisance student who's there to ask annoying questions and get in the way. So instead of deciding for ourselves what our identity is, let's see what God says our identity is. Let's see what he thinks of us this morning. So first we've already seen, we're living stones. So God sees his chosen people in a similar way to how he sees his son, perfect and fitting to be made into a spiritual house. Also we see verse 5, we're a holy priesthood. And then we get to verse 9 in this really wonderful full list. Chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And verse 10, once you're not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter uses language used for the nation of Israel in Exodus and the exile to show that these new Gentile Christians, they're now part of something bigger. They're part of that same nation, God's chosen people. And what a comfort this is for these first century Christians. These people who are aliens and strangers in the world, they've suffered persecution, many of them being disowned by their own families, pushed to the edges and outside of their own communities. 
So God tells them they're part of his royal priesthood and a chosen people. Your society has treated you as foreigners, but I'm going to take you into my great nation. You're part of the line of God's chosen people. So the words Peter uses in verse 9, they're from the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai. And by using them, he's saying, this alternative society that I created, that God created then, is an alternative society I want you to be a part of. So more than just being a comfort for comfort's sake, these words describe the very nature of church and who the people in God's church are. So if we look around at each other this morning, you're looking at a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That's our identity. And it's not individuals I'm asking you to look around at and say, well, there's a priest and there's another priest. No, the language used consistently throughout this passage is of a collective. God views us as one priesthood, one nation, one people. See, there's a unity to all of these descriptions. See, we're a community. Church and community isn't just a pragmatic tool for church growth that's quite appealing to our generation. Community is intrinsically what biblical church is. The alternative society that God created on Mount Sinai is what we're to be a part of. Let's look at one of these images in more detail. So if we look at verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So like living stones, we're built on the foundation and crafted into the likeness of Jesus. But we're being built together, brick on top of brick, your weight on top of my weight, your edges in contact with my edges. Why? To build this spiritual house, or in other words, a temple. That is, to be a place where God dwells and for sacrifices and worship to be brought to him. So that's essentially a description of our entire Christian experience. Does the church seem that important to you? So we're very much of the mindset that Christianity is our own personal thing. Church can be useful for topping us up spiritually so we can continue for the rest of the week. But that's not how God sees Christianity. He sees our faith reaching its fullness only when we are together in community. See, it's possible to worship and serve and learn about God on our own, but it's not the intended way to live the Christian life. To become the people God wants us to be, we must be living our Christian life together. Your weight on my weight, your struggles and challenges in contact with my rough edges, our time being shared and overlapping. And I know this isn't a new idea at Kirkpatrick. In fact, I know lots of examples of this happening or beginning to happen already, of families sharing meals together or sharing babysitting duties. Also in the new discipleship groups, as relationships are beginning to form and people are beginning to trust each other in those. Or as the breakfast club, as they settle into their new format and begin to work together and know that they can rely on each other. So there are encouraging signs, but are we there yet? Well, think of that idea of the living stones packed together, and that is Kirkpatrick. If a stone is removed from the wall, then the other stones should notice and be shaken by that. Are we so interdependent here in Kirkpatrick yet that our lives would be shaken if one stone left? 
Do we notice if one stone is weak or in trouble and needs our help? We can probably answer yes to that question about one or two people here. But in a church this size, it's hard to be able to say yes about everybody. That's why we encourage people to be part of discipleship groups and part of the community here at Kirkpatrick. And not just a part of them, but deeply invested members looking to be part of the alternative community of God's people. At a stage when Breakfast Club and Discipleship Group are new and just starting, putting the effort into forming these relationships can be hard. It can be tiring, indeed a little bit slow, but it's worth persevering with because community is how we become the people God wants us to be. Sometimes it's going to be an uncomfortable fit. Stones have pointy edges. But as we get closer to each other, we'll undoubtedly test each other's patience and grate against each other. But that's how we grow together. That's how God wants us to be. Unlikely characters working together for God's glory. It's a unique mark of this alternative society or community that God's going to take people who normally have nothing to do with each other and then put their lives so close together that they must rely upon each other. The first century church that Peter was writing to must have understood this message because it's been written about them to the shock of their contemporaries, that men and women, rich and poor, foreigner and national, people who should have no business to be together could all come together and live like a family and have such depth of relationship. And our church community today should equally shock those around us. Our love for one another, our shared lives, and our shared passion for Jesus should be distinct and noticeable to those around. So we've seen our identity as Christians is rooted in Christ and together as a nation or people or community. Now we can move on to the final point. Our new identity gives us our purpose. So hopefully, as we've been talking this morning, our new identity in Jesus and in community, this purpose has already been starting to build in your own mind. Maybe there's ideas there already about how you can live in community better or, or build upon relationships you already have here. See, it doesn't take long to transfer from identity to purpose. And Peter does it all throughout this short passage. So look with me to verse 5 again. Like living stones are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So a first purpose that we see is to be a priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. And that's not entirely obvious what that means, but here's where I think Peter's structure is really helpful. So remember we said verse 5 gets explained fuller in or further in verses 9 and 10. So we're looking at verse 9. The purpose of the royal priesthood is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. So our purpose as Kirkpatrick or as discipleship groups or as breakfast club is to declare the praises of God because he has saved us from our sins. See, our identity is as redeemed chosen people who love Jesus. And it is this identity that leads us into our life's purpose, wanting to declare this wonderful fact to others. It's the natural conclusion. But just as we're so used to thinking about our Christian lives 
in individualistic terms. I think we can think of evangelism as our own personal battle. But this here isn't a call to evangelize alone. This is a call to evangelize in terms of our new identity that we have. So if our identity is in a community based on Christ, this should shape how we declare the praises of God to the world around us. So what are the ways to do this? Well, I think a good place to start is verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Verse 12 is an example of community evangelism. As the church lives as the distinctive community that is its identity, then that will have an impact on unbelievers who, who see how you interact. I'd like to tell you a story from the book Everyday Church that the staff team here at Patrick's been reading recently. So a group of 10 middle-class graduates in, a, in England decided to move into a deprived area with the aim of planting a church there. However, to the frustration, this church never quite got off the ground and they had to start attending churches elsewhere in the city. However, all the while they continued to function as a community within their estate. They're always in and out of each other's houses. They helped each other with manual work, looked after each other's kids, walked the dogs together. They also made themselves active and known in the area. They started a local pub quiz. They played sport locally. They would walk to the shops instead of driving, and they made this real effort to get to know each and every one of their neighbors. Because of their distinctive living, they had an identity on the estate. They were known as the Christians. At first, people were wary of them because of this. But after watching and observing the quality of their relationships, people began to be intrigued. This group of Christians was able to open up its community and allow others in. They visited elderly neighbors, had non-Christians join them for meals together, and this led to many casual opportunities to share the gospel in just day-to-day life and to pray with people. When a fire broke out in the estate and burnt a few houses down, it was to the Christians that the community came for help and support. After this, people began to come and put their trust in Jesus. And God is seeing many people saved in this context through the simple act of people being good neighbors to one another. It's made an awful lot easier to be good neighbors if we're a community of good neighbors. And we can show that quality of relationship that strikes observers as countercultural, but is massively attractive. Of course, our distinctive community won't attract everyone. In fact, Peter makes it very clear throughout the book that we will be misunderstood and we will suffer for doing good. If people stumble over Jesus, the living stone, then they'll stumble over us as living stones too. But if we are together, we can get through discouragements like this. You see, working together as a team on evangelism has so many benefits. See, it's a shared pool of wisdom, a wider range of complementing gifts. So I once had a friend who had this incredible gift of being able to find people who were interested in Christianity. But she often found she got quite muddled trying to answer the trickier questions. So what she would do, she would introduce her friends to one of her shyer Christian friends, but she had an excellent gift for explaining the gospel clearly 
So that was community evangelism in purpose, in practice. And a close group, that's the best place to learn how to tell your friends the gospel. As you hear the stories from others in the group, how they've done it, you can, you can begin to see it's possible for you too. Together you can share encouragements, but also help each other through the discouragements. You see, it's a great thing that God has called us to a purpose as a community, that we have each other to go through it. It's what the church is supposed to be. See, it's our identity and purpose together, and it brings glory to God, not just from our lips, but also like verse 12 says, from the lips of others that we reach with this message and love of Christ. So I hope this morning you haven't been overwhelmed by a new sense of duty, but instead that you're overwhelmed with a sense of privilege, because that really is what the overriding emotion should be when reading this passage. As God builds his church, he should choose to use us to do it, that he sees us as in Christ. He sees us as royalty, as a priesthood, and as his special possession. And he plans us to be this loving community rather than isolated lone rangers. See, that's how God sees us Christians this morning. We have such a privileged identity before him, and it leads to the greatest purpose imaginable. That is, declaring the praises of the God who saved us. So as I close in prayer, let me thank God for the privileged identity and purpose he has given us. We were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Dear Lord, we thank you for the identity that you've given us. We thank you that you see us in such a wonderful way as chosen people, as your special possession and holy nation. All these titles are such a privilege for us. Lord, help us to be a close community here in Kirkpatrick, built on Christ the cornerstone, and may Jesus be precious to us. Please may all the other cornerstones be removed and may we be able to work well together and support each other and become the people you want us to become. God, help us to be a community that declares your glory to those around us. May we be able to encourage each other and help each other as we declare your praises. May we be able to live such good lives that will cause many to one day give glory to you. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.